Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. The wait is over and The Lord of the Rings is back. The new Amazon Prime show, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, takes big budget to new extremes with the claim of being the world's most expensive TV show ever made. And maybe there was only one man able to take on the challenge of building new worlds that reflect the extraordinary richness of Tolkien's, a certain Mr Jeff Bezos. If nothing else, the show promises to be epic. The story centres on the second age of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth, thousands of years before The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, as put on the big screen by Peter Jackson. There are a cast of characters you'll recognise, Galadriel, Elrond and plenty of elves and orcs, but if you're looking for hobbits, you'll instead find their evolutionary predecessor, the Harford. Tolkien's universe is infinitely complex and lavishly and lovingly rebuilt in this new version. And on today's programme, we'll help you find your way in this new series, providing a key of sorts to the maps around which that world is built. We'll be speaking to the showrunners for the series and our own Lord of the Rings authority, no less than John Mitchinson. But before we begin, let's hear some of the trailer. We thought the war, at last, was ended. Today, our days of peace begin. We thought our joys would be unending. We thought our light would never dim. The skies are strange. The moment we feared. Evil does not sleep. It waits. Beyond the darkness, tempting shadow to bury us all beneath the mountain. He has no one name, but many. If you heard a sour Exciting stuff. Uh, now to locate just exactly where we are in Tolkien's world and to find out why his work makes such rich pickings for the big and small screens, I'm joined by co-founder of Unbound and co-host of the Backlisted podcast, John Mitchinson. John, thank you so much for coming in to give us some context about this kind of sort of possibly brave new world, Lord of the Rings world, which is sort of a back to the future kind of kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So I know you've been studying the appendices of I Lord have, of the I mean, Rings on the way here. Thank you for doing well, that. What are they? What, what, well, there, there, there's a lot of stuff in the appendices to Lord of the Rings and there's a chronology. There are kind of brief accounts of really the deep history of Middle Earth. And the reason for that is that the Tolkien estate, when they granted Amazon the rights to make a TV series based on Tolkien's work, they, I think probably very wisely, decided that they couldn't extend the existing characters. They couldn't invent new material. But that doesn't really matter because the old material, for those of us who've been reading these books pretty much all our lives, mm. you know, finding out what happened in the Second Age. Now, the Second Age, the beginning of Lord of the Rings, in about the first sort of two minutes, there is Kate Blanchett talking over the 
this extraordinary scene on on the, the steps of Mount Doom where Isildur cuts the ring off Sauron's hand and the, there's a kind of amazing nuclear explosion. Yeah. He takes the, the ring and then he sort of loses the ring. That's the end of the Second Age. So to some extent what they're doing with, with these, I'm not sure how many they've yet, yet made. They've definitely made one season. And I think the plan yeah. is to make five. Yeah, I think there was a, I, mean, I think it, contractually there were, there yeah. had to be five to give it the sort of, yeah. So they're, they're no, taking no. this big chunk of, this the sort of the, everything that happens in the Lord of the Rings that we know, the book that we know, the films that we know, happens in the Third Age. This is the story of the Second Age, which is the really about the rise of men, Numenor, mm-hmm. this extraordinary island which creates a beautiful civilization of which by the time of the third age the only bits that are really left of that in its very degraded form is Gondor because of the yeah I mean again that's what we're going to find out where does it all go wrong for the the race of men and the other thing that's happening in the third age obviously is the elves the Eldar are leaving Middle Earth but in the second age they're very much there they're in their pomp in this absolutely so for those of us who like elves who like battles who like politics who like (laughs) the the possibilities of 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 what they've got the material that they've got are pretty much endless so very i mean really excited is that the sort of lure of it then it's the sort of breadth and depth of this sort of this second age this sort of prehistory if you like of at least the lord of the rings trilogy is that is that what it is in the sort of ability to kind of come up with satisfying creation myths or knowing where everything comes from? Is it, is it, this, is it that sort of slotting things together? I think there is an element of that. I, I think you have to say that what we now call world building, Tolkien mm. kind of almost invented yeah. the maps, the languages, the sense of deep history, deep time, of characters kind of, you know, that some characters that are eternal, some characters that die, of the, you know, the great sort of battle between originally the the evil character is Morgoth and his servant Sauron. And Sauron obviously plays a role in the Second Age. Although, interestingly, I've heard that he doesn't really appear much in the first season. He will not appear as a character, I think. I, I, I don't know. I mean, these are all the questions that we want to know. Will he appear as a character? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Or is he just, a, as he is in by the time of the Third Age, just a sort of evil eminence, st- yeah. an eye? You know, he, well, he won't be an eye. So I think the appeal is the detail. Tolkien sort of went deeper and further into his creation than almost anyone certainly before and possibly even since. And it has a kind of, there's a seriousness to Middle Earth. You know, it's, mm. I'm not suggesting that there's, I mean, I adore Terry Pratchett, you know, on a, on a good day. I, I love the rompiness of Game of Thrones. Yeah. But often people who read Tolkien don't read a lot of other fantasy. There is something quite special about it. And the good signs are that I think, from what I can see, is although it's not Peter Jackson, I actually think that's a good thing. I think... I was not a massive fan of the Hobbit uh, trilogy. I just felt that they tried, they'd taken a lovely story and expanded it too far. So got new showrunners who've got no particular track record but seem to be really intelligent. You've got John Howe, the art director who worked on the films. I mean, there will be people who didn't like the films. If you didn't like the films, you're probably not going to like the TV show. Yeah. But trying to preserve some of the kind of integrity. You know, Weta Workshops are involved, who did a lot of the, the great special effects for the films. It looks like an interesting new team of writers. 
Yeah, I just, I, I mean, you know, you'd ha- you're going to be curious. I mean, I'm, yeah, sure. I'm guessing that there will be things that people will dislike about the, the TV shows. I mean, everybody's a little bit nervous. <laughs> yeah, it, is, it does feel like that. There, the more you think of... about the more you think about the potential of the material, you have to say, this could also be great television. Yeah. We already know it's, the, it's going to be the most expensive <laughs> yes, television. Yes, exactly. Well, that's the thing. And I wonder, that's kind of like the much more than the $64 million question, isn't it? Is... What is the law? I mean, you, you've given us ample food for thought on that. But, I mean, you've almost, it's an open goal, you would have thought, in terms of the amount of people that are going to watch, the kind of importance, the kind of the imprint that it'll make on the TV schedules over the next sort of three to five years, I suppose. Right? Absolutely. We know that Elrond and Galadriel, the, the great elves, I mean, Elrond is a half-elf, and so he and his brother Elros, one decided to be a man and founded the civilization of Numenor, Elrond obviously becomes the great elf, one of the bearers of the Three Rings. They are the Jonathan and Paul Ross of the elf. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's it's not clear why the the Rings of Power. How did they celebrate the great elven craftsman? How does he get end up making the Rings of Power? Because the Rings of Power, as we know, it's a bit of a double edged sword. And how does Sauron end up? creating the one ring that links all of these other rings together. I mean, one hopes that over the course of the five seasons that a lot of interesting questions that anybody who's read the books will have will be solved. But you've also got, we know that there's that they've got Numenor, that's going to look incredible. They've, they've created a whole city, coastal city, this island of Numenor. We know that the, the Khazad-dûm, the great dwarvish kingdom, which was in ruins in Moria, when in Lord of the Rings is in its full splendor. Durin is the king yeah. of the dwarves. So the fact that you've got sort of proto-hobbits, the Harfoots, you'll have that kind of light relief, I'm guessing, kind of little yeah. Yeah. struggling heroes. I know Lenny Henry's been cast as one of those. So I don't know. I think you'll, there'll be a lot, a lot that will be familiar, but potentially in terms of narrative, I mean, you've already seen on the trailers, there's so much, there's so much uh, interesting. Also some good casting. I mean, Morford Clark as Galadriel, that's, she's a brilliant actress, and mm. I think will bring a kind of... Galadriel's a little bit kind of, you know, she's sort of on her way out in... She's lovely, obviously, in all that talking into people's heads and giving them special gifts. But this is Galadriel with real agency, a warrior, an elven warrior woman. Very, I mean, you know, all, what's not to like about that? She's phenomenal and super strong in, in this. We see sort of Numenor, Khazad-dûm, we see these places... At the height of their powers, we see commerce, trade, politics and all the rest of it. Well, there'll obviously be this sort of growing storm and the rise of Sauron and all these sorts of dark forces lurking there and thereabouts in these five seasons. But I wonder whether we like the, a bit like War and Peace, the, the book. I wonder whether we like the war or the peace more. Lots of people have said of War and Peace, just read the war. If you're in a hurry, just read the war because the peace bits don't really need to be there. And I wonder whether that's the case that... You know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy kind of cuts to the chase. You see the demise of these great kingdoms. You see yeah, flashbacks yeah. to maybe their their beauty and their majesty. But I wonder about the narrative dynamic of seeing places a little bit more at peace, places being built up rather than brought down. Do you well, know what I mean? I mean, again, it's really mm. hard to know. But mm. at the core of the Second Age story is this is what happens to Numenor if it's so wonderful and, as you say, rich and happy. There's a rebellion, there's a civil war... A king called Ar Farazon becomes the king of Numenor. And he, I mean, all the way through, there's the battling with, with Sauron, with the gathering forces of darkness. 
I'm guessing that there is a, from what little I've seen of the trailers, this Galadriel being able to say, you people are not seeing what's happening. You know, the, mm-hmm. the darkness is, is returning to Middle-earth, to Eriador. And so there will be, I mean, there's clearly going to be lots of fighting. There is also the betrayal in the end, that, again, from this deep story. Our Farazon is so powerful. He gathers a massive force and he arrives back to reconquer Middle-earth and Sauron abases himself before him and he makes a fatal error. He takes Sauron back to Numenor and it's then that Sauron basically influences the... Now, I have no idea whether any of this is going to be... It certainly won't be in the first season. I believe there are but, heavy, hint, heavy hints to Sauron but, being a if not a regular guy, a presence that isn't more than an I, eye. I think, yeah. I think all of that, which is, again, the great betrayal that, you know, history, it's, you know, pride becomes before the fall. Um, and it also, it will end sort of where Lord of the Rings began with, with I get the, you know, Isildur, the last alliance of elves and men. and the. But I think there's so much scope for getting in the culture, both at the Numenorean culture, but also the, the elven culture. There's a, the, one of the great characters, great elven kings. Gil-galad, I know, is, is going to feature in the series, and The Fall of Gil-galad is a poem that, that is recited in Lord of the Rings. So for those people who are nerdy about their Lord of the Rings lore, there's a, a massive amount that we're going to be sitting there looking at and, and trying to... Yes. But for those yeah. who just, I think, want a kind of gorgeous, massive adventure. Now, the other thing that's interesting is there was a... <laughs> on some of the fan is there was... They've used an intimacy coach... And there's, a, uh, and there's yeah. been a lot of people going, oh, my God, is it going to be like Game of Thrones? Are yeah. they going to sex Lord of the Rings up? Because let's be honest, there isn't a lot of... It's fairly chaste. It's, it's fairly fa- male and it's fairly yes, chaste. there's not a lot of yeah. the, the kind of sort of the heavy petting and the rest <laughs> that goes goes on. Nor is there the kind of gruesome violence. Now, it's an interesting one. Have audiences become kind of... Will they find in a, in, in, in a series context the the slow build the tolkien the kind of rather rather more kind of political elegant cultural narrative a bit dull i don't know it depends i mean like i say i'm pretty confident that you know they've got a team of interesting and we'll find out fairly soon whether or not the showrunners are, are up to it but everything i've seen i mean the first series i know was shot in new zealand which is again very like the films and and the second set of film is they take bring as I say bringing it home. It's being shot in the in the UK. It's far more I have to say for me than than House of Dragons, the, the Game of Thrones. Mm. Um, I, this is the big one, and if they can pull this off, well, we, you know we've got years of fun to come. In a way, if if you're interested in in big twentieth century sort of narrative, I mean it's global, Lord of the Rings. It's it's everywhere. It's it's a story that has I think transcended boundaries or and cultures. And seeing, I mean, amazing, an amazing train set to be in charge of. It really is, isn't it? And if the, if the Lord of the Rings, the entire idea of it is the Bible of fantasy, this is the sort of... The Old Testament. They were in the numbers, the Deuteronomy, yeah, were in yeah, these yeah, yeah. kind of things. There is much begetting good. of, yeah. there are many surnames and much begetting of. And John, that has teed us up beautifully. So thank you very much. Thank you. Now, to find out just how you reimagine Tolkien in a new and in the most extravagant of ways, we caught up with the Rings of Power showrunners and executive producers J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay. J.D. and Patrick, lovely to have you on the programme. Patrick, I'm going to kick off 
with you. You've got a wonderful opportunity. It's a chalice of some sort. We know what most chalices are. But you've got, you're working with source material here with um, the Rings of Power, which is much less known than some of the other stories that Tolkien wrote, of course. Does that feel like you've been able to sort of create a brand new brave world to populate? Or do you still feel that you're kind of very tethered to Tolkien's work? We feel incredibly lucky Tolkien outlined these amazing stories and this incredible, you know, world and era of Middle Earth mythology um, that for most audiences will be a completely new narrative. Um, and I think we feel, you know, we certainly don't feel like we're creating anything, nor do we feel like I think we're, we're, we're tethered to it. I think we're just trying to, you know, be stewards of those stories and realize them hopefully in the grandest, most, you know, emotionally impactful way possible. Nice. And you've got, obviously, people will be familiar with some of the characters will one day beget, I suppose. Tolkien is nothing if not a begetter of huge family trees and and all the rest of it. To what extent have you kind of created a new taxonomy of races, peoples, varieties of landscape and all the rest of it, J.D.? That part we are going just back to the books, straight from the source material. And really what we've tried to do is, more than create, we've tried to excavate. And Tolkien himself talked about the feeling that he was always trying to sort of find something that felt like it, it predated even him. Uh, even he felt like you know, Middle-earth was a real place that he was sort of discovering. We've tried to use that same approach as, as we've been developing this material. So all the lands are lands that are spoken of in the text, and the peoples are, are people that come from the text. And, and, you know, for example, Harfoots, a group that Tolkien talks about being sort of an early branch of like proto-hobbits, and he talks of their wandering days and gives us some of their characteristics. So what we've then done is we've taken a couple of the, the little clues he's given us, and we've built out an entire culture and civilization, but it always starts with Tolkien. I love the idea that you're excavating. I'm sure that is exactly, as you say, something that Tolkien felt he was doing, having created a world. He'd created something that was kind of beyond the bounds almost, it seems impossible, beyond the bounds of his own imagination. And one thing that I love that you've done in this series is you've gone large on the map. You've turned that famous map at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings and the other books into this beautiful kind of dramatic opening, as it were. This thing comes alive. How early on did you decide to riff on the the map idea of, I guess, stewarding this this huge world that Tolkien created? Funny you should mention, that was actually, I think, the very first thing we ever said or did on the project. When we first met with Amazon to start talking about the possibility of a show like this, it was, I believe, end of January 2018. J.D., I've been saying that. Is that accurate? I think um, so. Yes. Yeah. And the first thing we did was we sort of drew the world of Middle-earth on a, a whiteboard. And I say the world because... Technically, Middle-earth is actually sort of a continent within the world, and the world is quite bigger beyond Middle-earth. It's called Arda, and there's, you know, Numenor, the great island to the west, and, you know, the far west, Valinor, Amman, you know, further west even than that, and then there's Rune to the east, and there's all sorts of regions to the north, and the south, Harad. And the very first conversation we had with Amazon, we said, every story that most audiences have seen in Middle-earth is set in this very small part of it, but actually the world is much much more vast and we want to go all over it. So that was in some ways the goal from the very, very, very beginning. Well, I'm glad to hear that because as I'm sure fans of the source material yourselves, that's the bit that makes those stories seem even larger than the kind of heroics and all the rest of it and the depth of the characters and stuff, especially when you're a kid, isn't it? Those maps kind of speak to something about adventure and about faraway lands when you maybe haven't even left your hometown as a, as a kid. Do you guys know what I mean in the sense that I guess you, you tapped into that, the beguiling nature of those maps? 
Well, yeah, it's, it's like finding a treasure map, and you take a look at it, and you feel like, if I had this map, and if someone flunked me in Middle-earth, I could probably find my way, and, and I, I too could go from the Shire to, to Rivendell, or to, to Mordor, or you know, to, to wherever in Middle-earth. It'd feel like a very rich and real place, and, and part of, I think, what makes Tolkien so special is that he approached this, not so much even as a fantasy writer, but as, he approached it with the rigor of a, a linguist and a historian. He created multiple in-world languages, and he tracked the morphology and syntax of how these languages developed over hundreds of years of history. And so because of that, it feels real. There's something beyond that we should talk about too. I love the word you used, beguiling. And if you felt it all that way watching the first episode, that you know is very touching to hear. We certainly aspire to that. When we read Tolkien, we're touched by, you know, and impressed by constantly the way that every leaf has a backstory. You know, every mountain has a mountain range beyond it that has its own mythology. Tolkien talked about the importance of the distant mountains. And, you know, I believe someone asked him once in an interview, hey, those mountains over here, what's there? And he says, well, I can't tell you. And they say, why? And he says, because if I tell you, then I'd have to come up with more mountains beyond that where you don't know what it is. Which is to say that, you know, around every corner, there's not just a story, but another story hidden behind that corner. And that depth and breadth is something that I think, you know, you feel on every page of, of those books. And, you know, we certainly aspired to giving the visual and, you know, narrative world of our show that kind of depth. If we succeeded even in some small way, that would really be important to us. We'd love that. It's a lovely answer. I mean, also, I'm, I'm pleased to feel that JD can um, simply pack a rucksack and use the Middle Earth map and never get lost. Well, a brave, what a brave soul he is, <laughs> not just for taking on this show. <laughs> Funny you say that because we did think about our characters at this point. We're like, they're living in Middle Earth. I and mean, you can you almost take it for granted that, but like, you know, you think of our Harfoots who are these small little characters and, and you know, it's like, you know, this is a place that has trolls and uh, dragons and Balrogs and orcs. And, you know, it's a scary place, Middle Earth. On that front, you've got a whole new kind of retinue of of elves and perhaps even the idea that the, the elves turn into the orcs and, and that their sort of um, foundation myth, if you like. There's all sorts of characters maybe at their very genesis or at the point that they change and all the rest of it how fun and exciting was that and perhaps nail-biting a challenge was that to to find some of the myths of the foundation of the lord of the rings itself those three books and the hobbit it's a responsibility isn't it but an exciting challenge presumably jd to find the point at which you know atlantis was not a lost city it was a burgeoning seaside town kind of thing well that that's that's a lot of you know, what we try to do in the, in the second age and, and what's so fun about working in this time period is it the, the third age is almost in the third age is you know the time of of the story of, of frodo and, and bilbo and the ones that you know a little better but the third age is in some ways sort of post-apocalyptic middle earth you know the the party has kind of half ended and the elves already have one foot out the door towards valley and the dwarves, their mighty kingdom is now kind of a tomb, you know, but in the second age, really the party is in full swing. I mean, you're in, you know, elf London, <laughs> where uh, everything is, you know, alive and vibrant and, and it's filled with people and with politics and with dreams and ambitions. And you're going to meet these iconic characters like Elrond, who is not the sort of jaded elder statesman of, of later years. He's the young, optimistic, almost wet behind the ears courtier who has a, a vision for what elves can achieve in Middle-earth. Uh, same with Galadriel. She's not the, you know, wise, seasoned Lady of the Florian. You know, she's the intemperate young warrior who has uh, goals and ambitions. And, and so seeing some of these iconic characters and peoples uh, in their height and in, in some ways proto-versions of who they will become later on gives you a chance to do a lot of character exploration, a lot of development, a lot of um, world building, and, and a lot of deepening of our understandings of some of these iconic peoples and places. I just have to riff on, you mentioned uh, the origin of uh, orcs being elves or something to that effect. We can neither confirm nor deny anything about that. 
<laughs> yeah, we would not be quoted on that. All right. I wanted to ask you about the great kind of evil elephant in the room. Sauron is not just alluded to. He is more than just an evil elephant in the room. I understand it as the rings of power go on. That Now that's kind of like taking Vader's helmet off, isn't it? being able to sort of do some characterization around Sauron rather than just this sort of sort of horrible force. How on earth did you approach personifying him, as it were? We loved the idea of setting a show in this era, the Second Age, because this is the era of the rise of Sauron. This is when he's, you know, operating in various forms. He is powerful, laying waste entire regions, deceiving people by offering power, tempting them with rings. And we reckoned that was, you know, really fertile terrain for a huge epic story and journey. But we started really looking into, again, what does Tolkien say? And what does he say in his letters? What, what does he have to say about the psychology of this character? What was he doing at the, at the early portions of the age? We, we looked at Milton and Paradise Lost. We thought about Ahab and, you know, Richard III, some of the great literary villains. Even um, Iago. Iago, absolutely. Sauron is not a major player in the first season of this show, but I assure you at some point he will be. To do him justice would be a great honor. Yeah, I mean, that's exciting stuff. I mean, we look forward to that season, that episode, that series of episodes um, where we explore his, no doubt, lovely character in all its glory. You mentioned Shakespeare. You mentioned Melville there as possible inspiration. I wanted to ask you a bit about Tolstoy, actually, because this feels like something of the breadth and scale of War and Peace. And you know what people say about that, that the war bits are always better than the peace bits. You can almost flick through them. Not that you'd want to... You, you, you mean you don't like the bits about Levin farming and Anna Karenina? <laughs> those are... Those are what, that's very important to understand. You guys, come on. <laughs> There's an element of that in some of Tolkien's work, brilliant as it all is, but you have to know how to strike that balance. How did you guys find that? JD, sorry, I'll, I'll direct that question to you. So really our story is, is about the re-emergence of evil into Middle-earth. And we started at a time of relative peace in which the elves kind of think, you know what, we've done it. We've sort of have swept the, the earth and tried to, to clear up any last remnants of problems from the prior age. And it really seems like things are going pretty well. One of our major protagonists, Galadriel, feels like that there's something they've missed and there's something that's still out there. So really it's that sense of the sort of gnawing intuition that, and almost a little bit of a Cassandra complex where you feel like there's something more going on and there's darkness underneath the surface. And her challenge is an internal one, is an external one, and, and also one that is amongst challenge amongst friends. And that's really one of the major themes of the show is that it's people also struggling with their goodness. It's, it's competing visions for the good and how to enact them. You know, which is a really interesting thing to explore as, as different people see their roles in the world and uh, how they can bring visions of, of what the best thing for, not only for their people, but for, for Middle Earth is and, and how those things come in conflict with each other. J.A. Biona, our wonderful, wonderfully talented director of the first two episodes, loved the idea that, uh, he talked about it a lot, that we're sort of starting in a time of relative peace, but there's something lurking in the shadows. There's a feeling of something just under the ground that's about to surface, quite literally. You know, we can talk after you've seen the second episode. But I think we were taken with the notion of the peace bits and the war bits maybe happening at the same time in a way. Yeah, I love it. I mean, the breadth of it is breathtaking. It does feel like we're experiencing some beautiful old territory whilst sort of being presented with a clean slate as well. It's wonderful, wonderful, powerful stuff. Patrick and JD, I'll let you pack your backpacks and explore the outer reaches of that lovely map you've created. And thank you very much for your time. Very thank you so of, much. Very lovely kind of you. Thank you. Lovely to talk with you. 
That is all we have time for today. Thanks very much to my guests, John Mitchinson, J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Pounds, thank you for tuning in. <laughs>